Hello, and welcome to Down to Sally's Cove, a collection of stories about Newfoundland and Labrador by the late Ella Manuel and read by me, Anthony Berger. I'm the editor of my mother's writings about the history and rich culture of the places and people she knew and loved. Many of these stories she read on local and national radio in the 1940s to 1970s. As Canada celebrates its 100th birthday, El Emanuel spends a peaceful day on the Upper Humber in an episode entitled Canada's Centennial on the River. With my first grandchild now born, I imagine how his children and grandchildren would celebrate the end of Canada's second century. I wonder how they would take my leaving a memento for them, an account of my celebration of the first centennial, on good rag paper, of course, so as to preserve the document. They would all then marvel at the old days when one woman could own half an acre of earth and a house on it. So I'm going to write it all down, for they will know none of the wonders I have told. In July 1967, as Canada celebrated its 100th birthday, I drove with two friends through the heart of the great northern peninsula. We traveled over high hills, around hairpin bends, with not another vehicle in sight, for this was a private road of the Bowwater Company, leading to the upper reaches of the Humber River. Down this floats pulpwood for a hundred miles or more to the paper mill in Cornerbrook. On the hillsides, the spruce and fir grew tall. This was second-growth timber, for this part of the country had been logged when Canada was less than fifty years old. The road was lined with aspen, birch, and maple. The sun blazed down, and we reached the road's end. A chain at the entrance to a bridge over the dam was lifted by the caretaker, and as I stepped out of the car he said, Shush! and pointed upstream, where a giant bull moose was dipping his nose into the water. He drank lifted his magnificently antlered head with water streaming off his muzzle and ambled slowly up the bank. He comes down here every evening for a drink, the caretaker said, and he's as tame as a puppy. He talked about the river, no salmon yet but plenty of trout, and about the people who came to fish. There would hardly be anyone yet, so we wouldn't be disturbed. The caretaker helped us load food and gear into a big dory, attached the outboard motor, and chugged us upriver. We threaded our way through the rocky channel, the water ahead all purple and gold, the wake behind tinged with pink. Half an hour or so upstream we came to an island on which stood one of the last remaining aboriginal pines, all spread out on top like an umbrella. We drew up at a neat little wharf and unloaded before a lovely house, the like of which you wouldn't believe on a little island in the midst of a remote river. It stood on a rise surrounded by fruit trees and flowering shrubs, all brown logs and blue trim, and enormous windows. Inside it was even more astonishing. Electric lights, carpets, old furniture and deep armchairs, a field stone fireplace, and in the bedrooms linen sheets and fluffy wool blankets. For this house had been built for the director of the paper company as his very own fishing lodge, no expense paired. Now that he was dead, and since the new director apparently cared little for isolation or fishing, company executives used it frequently for holidays, and we were guests of one of them. We stowed our gear, ate, and putting up our rods, sat on the little wharf talking quietly and dabbling dry flies on the surface. We almost fell overboard laughing at the minute trout, 
who hurled themselves out of the water after our flies. We had a game lifting the flies higher and higher over the bland surface to see who could bring a trout farthest out of the water, and watching them streak away, marked by the white edges of their fins. As the sun set and the spruces on the far bank traced black lines in the red sky, one isolated group of tall trees far away from us looked like an enormous billboard in the sky. Another moose appeared, a young one, and had his evening drink not a hundred yards from us. A beaver swam out into the river, dived when he saw us, and reappeared just over a bed of reeds. There he stopped for supper, upending himself and diving in water so clear that we could see him completely below the surface as he tore at the roots and gobbled them up. He'd had a busy day, had our beaver, and he was hungry. Off in the distance a robin called. We heard a loon. Darkness fell and gigantic mosquitoes drove us indoors, and so the day ended in quiet sleep. The next day began for me by a persistent knocking outside as if someone was tapping on my window with a pebble. I looked out but could see nobody. I opened my door softly and found nobody stirring in the house. The noise went on, and as abruptly as it started, it stopped. The mystery was solved when I stepped out on the lawn, just in time to see a woodpecker fly back to the tin stovepipe and begin his tattoo. Apparently he did this every morning, at at least every one when people were there. I should have been warned, but then I wouldn't have been out at daybreak, nor seen the rabbits playing about. All that day was sheer magic. I borrowed an old dory and rowed across the river towards the mouth of Taylor's Brook, following it up and up, around bends, under blowdowns, wading and pulling the boat where I couldn't row. I saw many wonderful things, a bittern sitting on a dead tree branch, all hunched up and glaring at me, the young moose again, breaking out of the bushes and drinking at the flowing stream, so close I could have walloped them with my oar. Millions of little trout circled my dory, playing about and enjoying themselves. And I saw a mother duck and four young ones learning to swim, I presume, and not the least put off by my presence. I'd collected a few mushrooms and allowed my boat to float with the current, back for lunch in the kitchen with window frames, shelves, cupboards, and floor painted in a soft red. Then I dozed in the sunshine under a cliff lined with flowering crab, lupins, asters, and raspberry canes, and later ambled along the trails through the woods, finding strange beauty at every step. My host and I floated down the humber in the dory, hardly making a ripple, until we came to an old boom on the bank. We tied up there and cast our lines over the water. So many trout besieged us that we filed the barbs off our hooks, teased the little trout, and were more amused than ever at their antics, until one huge one leaped, missed the fly, leaped again and swallowed it, and then another and another, until we had enough for supper. As we were making for home, the watchman came from the boom with a bottle opener he thought we would need, and a few bottles to go with it. He told us, I took the general down to the lower boom this morning. The general was a Cornerbrook doctor who haunted the river. And did he ever get some trout? I thought I'd have to kill him to get him out of there. As the evening came, the sky grew pink, its reflection in the still water perfection. The sun went down in a heat haze with one cloud streaked across it, slowly down, three-quarters showing, then a half, then a quarter, until finally only the tip of the golden ball. The birds stopped singing. The beaver returned to fill his stomach and give us a show. A flotilla of ducks crossed the river, led by mother, like a full-rigged schooner. 
the loon let out one lunatic giggle, and a late thrush began her exquisite song. The mosquitoes settled down on us, and we went inside to eat our birthday dinner. It was July the 1st, Canada's Day. What a feast it was! The fresh trout elegantly cooked, lobster as well, and fresh tomatoes and blueberry pie made from last year's picking outside the house. And to make it a real feast, a bottle of good wine that tasted of sunshine. And then we settled before the huge fireplace and set the birch logs ablaze against the chill. We just sat and stretched and sighed, replete with happiness, not speaking as we drank our coffee. With these friends we did not have to chatter to break an uncomfortable quiet, for they valued silence as much as I. Then, when we'd had enough silence, we turned on our old radio, tuned to the BBC, and heard the most magnificent concert of Beethoven's music, coming clear and gloriously melodious across the Atlantic to us in our remote little room on the Upper Humber. Rarely did we hear music so undistorted as we did that night. What luck, I thought, to be with friends on such a night in so peaceful a place. And then I reminded myself that we ought not to think only of ourselves, but also of the well-being of our environment and all it contains, earth, air, water, animals, birds, plants, trees. We have only the loan of them for our lifetime, a sort of ninety-nine-year lease, and as decent tenants we should turn the property over to the next tenants in as good a state of repair as we found it. Then. Maybe in 2067 Canadians will still have something to celebrate and somewhere in which to celebrate it. That was me, Anthony Berger, reading a story by the late El Emanuel from the podcast series Down to Sally's Cove. This was recorded in the studios of VOBB, the Voice of Bombay, community radio in the heart of Grossmoor National Park in western Newfoundland. Recording engineer and sound editor was Gary Wilton. Background music from Coffee in the Cove, written and played by David Berger. Together with a biography of my mother, these and other stories are available in book form entitled No Place for a Woman, The Life and Newfoundland Stories of El Emanuel, published in 2020 by Breakwater Books, St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. Thanks for listening. And tune in to the next episode, in which El Emanuel discovers an old but exquisitely written guide to Newfoundland coasts. Mm-hmm.